and welcome back to another episode of the Rage Podcast. I'm your host, Micaela Parker, and on today's episode, we will be talking to Gelaldo Munoz, PhD student at the University of Denver, current manager of learning and development in Denver Public Schools, public educator for 25 years, and the 2021 Colorado Teacher of the Year. In this episode, we will be discussing humanizing teaching practices, the importance of community healing, and how to truly center students in academic settings. This conversation made me reflect on the impact ethnic studies has had on my academic career and self-development. With that being said, I want to take a moment to thank the Ethnic Studies Department at Colorado State University, all the faculty and staff who helped teach me, but specifically, I want to thank Ernesto Sagas, who taught me my first Ethnic Studies class fall 2016. The skills and knowledge I was taught gave me the vernacular and historical context to name the oppressive systems around me. I will continue to give the gift of education and ethnic studies to all those around me. And with that being said, let's jump into this great episode. I'm Gerardo Munoz, pronouns are he, him, and él. I do a lot of different things. So currently my official role is I manage learning and development in Denver Public Schools, which the translation is that I am in charge of all of our programming for student teachers and brand new teachers. And so I have a team of specialists we work on. How to answer this question of like recruitment and retention of educators, particularly educators of color, mm-hmm. who are really lacking in the system. So I do that. I'm the executive producer of Two Dope Productions, who hosts the podcast Two Dope Teachers in a Mic. My guy, Kevin Adams, shout out Kev. And so we've been doing that for about seven years. This is season seven for us, where we attempt to remix the conversation on race, power, and education. Prior to all that, I was a middle and high school social studies teacher. So I taught mostly world history and ethnic studies mm-hmm. to high schoolers. And then I, I taught some cultural studies to middle schoolers and that kind of thing. Did that for 23 years. And in 2021, I was named Colorado Teacher of the Year. That was wild because, (laughs) it really was, because I am the first Chicano identifying Colorado State Teacher of the Year, and that's a trip because this used to be Mexico, and it seems, and it's just, it was a really interesting path, but that opened up a lot of doors, and so as a result, I'm working as an IRISE visiting scholar, doing some digital media work, which I think is really cool that I'm here with you, and then I'm also working on a fellowship called Voices for Honest Education, where we're pushing back against anti-CRT, anti-LGBTQ legislation in certain educational settings. All that while being a full-time PhD student here at the University of Denver. So it's a lot. That's a, I do a lot. <laughs> I feel the same way. I do yeah. too much. And then I'm like... Well, I graduated in June, so like, yeah. live it up. And for me, I think I spent a lot of time trying to meet the expectations of others okay. and trying to do the thing that others thought I should be doing or others mm-hmm. thought I was a good fit for. And while I'm obviously doing too much on top of being a spouse and a parent, but it is giving me an opportunity to ask some really important questions of myself. What am I about? How do I want to show up in this world? Mm-hmm. And how do I clear away things that I don't want to be a part of in favor of those things that I do? Right. Your legacy is going to be so sublime just because of your awareness to self. But my first question for you, what inspires you to teach? So that's a kind of different story, and it's probably not what one would expect. So 
I was nominated as Colorado Teacher of the Year, and of course I Googled it. I'm like, who, is this really a thing? Like, I wasn't sure if it was spam that I got in my email. And so I looked it up and I was like, oh wow, that's a legit thing. And mm -hmm. it's a really interesting thing. And so I looked at the racial demographics of who passed Colorado Teachers of the Year. And with a few exceptions, it was exclusively white women from suburban districts. And so I'm thinking to myself, this is not me. Like, this is not me. So it was my spouse It was like, well, apply and just be yourself because you already know the cards are probably stacked against you anyway, so just go in there and be yourself. So I applied, and then I was notified that I was a finalist in October of 2021, and I'm like, that's wild. Like, this is unbelievable. <laughs> like, did they actually read my application or watch my video and that kind of thing? And so I did the interview, and on October 29th, 2020. In fact, I was announced as Colorado Teacher of the Year, so my responsibility was going to be to represent the 66,000 school teachers in the state of Colorado. And so I think what's really profound about that program is they ask us to reflect on our teacher identity and what brought us here, what led us into this work. And I heard a lot of stories around me of people I used to always want to be a teacher. I used to pretend I was a teacher with my friends. Like I was talking about it from like fifth grade on. And I never, I never saw myself that way. Like my mother is a retired teacher and I thought she did really important work. My dad, I don't think has any formal education. And so this teacher thing just kind of came out of nowhere. And it was actually ethnic studies in college that gave me something to talk to people about. And I noticed that so many people, particularly in my community, didn't have this kind of knowledge. So in December of 1999, I was hired as a long-term sub at a school. And really, people ask me what got me into teaching. I'm like, I needed a job. Like, I was broke at the end of college. That was a whole trauma. And so when you're telling me that you're going to give me 25,000 whole dollars a year and I'm going to get insurance, I don't care. What's the job? Teaching? Cool, I'm in. So I started teaching as a sub, and at that time there was a big teacher shortage, just like now. And so Denver Public Schools had created this teacher in residence program where you could teach while working on your teaching credential because I hadn't majored in education. I didn't go to teacher school. I was never a student teacher. I didn't take any of the coursework, which became kind of a source of insecurity for me as I kind of went through the profession. But as I went through the work and as I got excited about I just want my students to talk about this stuff. I want to know what they think about the history that I was able to learn and that they haven't had an opportunity to learn yet. I fell in love with the work and I fell in love with the idea of becoming human because I think that more than anything, teaching gave me a way to start to become human and Paulo Freire writes about this process of becoming human. So the simple answer is I have no idea why I came into teaching. I needed to work, I needed an income, and ultimately it was humanizing and it allowed me to kind of grow into it where I would end up later on. I love that because it was actually a question regarding <laughs> humanization. When I talked to Dr. Salazar, yeah. this was something that we talked a lot about yeah. with humanizing pedagogy and amplifying students' treasures in yeah. the classroom yeah. and like what they bring with them isn't something that they have to hide. Yeah. And that actually made me think a little bit about your work is also centered in healing yeah. and this idea that healing is at the center of not only teaching but existing. Yeah. 
And I really love that because it just aligns so much with what I just yeah. recently did a conversation with yeah. Our Stories, Our Medicines Archive. Oh. I yeah, I love I know I love them. And so like it's so cool that even if I didn't want all these conversations to be connected, they yeah. were. Yeah. Because all of y'all's work is centered in like, the passion for dignity. Yeah, and it's a little frustrating actually because I think mm. that when I came into the work as a teacher and I on my own healing journey, you know, even in my late 40s, I imagine I will be for the rest of my life, you know, that's part of it. But I think what I always discovered was that when students came into my classroom, particularly I was teaching at an alternative school. It was a school where students enrolled there when they were behind in their credits mm -hmm. and they needed to find a way to catch up. And then what you realize really quickly, they're not behind in their credits because they just don't feel like doing the work or they're not smart or they're lazy or any of the, these kinds. Like we may label it that, right. but that's never what it is. They've all experienced some form of harm or alienation from education in general and whether that harm began at home in harmful environments or whether it began when they first came into a school, they've experienced harm. And so I came in with all of these really, and I'll admit it, with really elitist ideas. Like I love being smart. I love thinking that I'm the smartest person in the room. Like I love thinking that I've read more books than anybody I come into contact with. And so I came in with kind of an elitist frame saying that there's all this knowledge that I want you to gain. And what I realized is that that wasn't the work the work was to help students find healing from what they'd experienced previously. And I think, you know, Kevin, my partner on the podcast, on the Two Dope Teachers and a Mic podcast, in a conversation we had with Dr. Bettina Love, she writes about spirit murdering and the spirit murdering that happens to black and brown children in schools. And so he said, well, if we have spirit murder happening, then maybe teachers of color are spirit healers. And so I always kind of use this because it's like, I wanted to come in with knowledge, right? With knowledge and to empower you in the way that I was empowered. But instead, it becomes my job to be a healer. And of course, I'm going to do it because we can't take advantage of all the books in the world until we become whole. And so I always have this kind of feeling of like, yeah, I mean, it would have been cool to just teach about my civilization, but ultimately that wasn't the work. That wasn't the work that... At least that wasn't what came first. Right. And so I think the designation of healing is really interesting to me because I wish we didn't have to. I wish we didn't have to, but it is reality in this white supremacist capitalist patriarchal system that people are damaged not as a one-off or not as, hey, it's a great system, you know, a few people may get hurt along the way. No, this is not a bug of the system. This is a function of the system. You have broken people, people who get broken by all of it. And because of that, we need healers. Mm. I don't know if I'm a healer. I try, you know, and I try to kind of, you mentioned Dr. Salazar, who I think is the most important intellectual influence on my life. And when she talks about humanizing, I think about how I had to learn as a teacher that every single kid that walked through that door to sit in my classroom was exactly the person that they were supposed to be. They did not need to be fixed by me. They did not need to be redirected by me. What they needed to do was to find a way to their own wholeness because they're whole. I just have to help them see it and see that they're the people that they're supposed to be. And that's a surprisingly radical take in education. 
And there's a question the, if we're centering ourselves yes. in the work, and and that's something I've always tried to really be vigilant against. I'm, I know I'm not always successful, but I think that there's a book, and I don't remember the author's name. I have to find it, but there's a book out there called Educators as First Responders, and so that's what I kind of think of is this professor wrote this book, kind of saying that you know one of the important role of of educators of teachers is that when a child experiences harm, when a child gets upset about something, when somebody is mean to a child or they witness something that they wish they hadn't, typically they don't go to their parents first. They don't go to the school psychologist first. They don't go to the counselor first. They don't go to the social worker first. Typically they go to a teacher who they have a trusting relationship with. And I, man, I can't tell you, well, legally I can't tell you, how many times I've had students bring me things that I needed to report mm -hmm. and being the first person to know that a child was in a harmful situation. And so I think that the healing to me is aspirational, but the healing is something that I hope takes place every day, every time a kid comes into my classroom and they're in a bad mood. And I say to them, yo, are you doing okay? Like, take care of yourself today. Instead of saying, what's your problem? Do your work, that kind of thing. But I think that a lot of times there's also that I'm the pedagogical EMT, where I'm the first on the scene. I'm the first one to hear what's going on. I'm the first one to see the harm. And then I have to get other people involved who can hopefully help. I've never heard about that. Like, yeah. that is really radical to me. Like, even some teachers are transitioning from saying parent-teacher conferences. Yeah. Because the caregiver isn't always a parent. That's right. Well, we have to be smart about what yeah. we about what we share and how we share it because we don't know how the parent may react to a yeah. student who has low grades, how they may react yeah. to a student who maybe said something inappropriate in class. Like, we don't know yeah. what's waiting for them when they get home. I think that level of awareness and thinking and how you deliver information is so important because mm. I remember I dreaded parent-teacher conferences yeah. I was the student that always talked too much that was distracted <laughs> the same yeah like I was the one that never got any. no wonder done. this conversation is going so well <laughs> right exactly <laughs> really similar. we're so yeah. similar oh, yeah. and like I remember I just used to dread it not because my mom would do anything but because right. I just didn't like disappointing my mom yeah especially by a hundred percent if not 99 percent all of these teachers being white yeah. I was being critically examined through this hyper white affluent mm, lens as well. That. So like nothing I did was going to be deemed yeah. as acceptable yeah. because I was a young black student yeah. in those classrooms. <laughs> and they already knew that my mom was a single parent as well. Yep. And so in and I'm sure they had opinions about exactly. that. Exactly. Yeah. You know what yep. I mean? So yep. like there's these biases that are also attributed mm -hmm. to my effectiveness within classrooms yeah. and even with building community with my teacher. Yeah. Yeah. And like... It wasn't until I had transferred to a school that was more diverse, mm -hmm. lower socioeconomic, mm -hmm. like closer to my home, like yeah. actually within yeah. my district, that I was like, I feel at home. Wow. Like, I feel comfortable. That's deep. That's and deep. even now, like, people always talk about, oh, I hate going to my high school. <laughs> I go back to my high school because it saved my life. Oh, it really did. If, if it that's wasn't beautiful. for seeing people who looked like me teaching me, yeah. talking wow. about ethnic studies. Yeah. I would have never pursued higher ed. Yeah. Like, I only went to college because my counselors and everyone around me was like, bro, you're making 4.7 GPAs. There's no <laughs> way you can't go to college. Yeah. And I'm just like, really? I never thought about it. <laughs> like, you know, like, I just never, it was never something that I felt was tangible to me because mm -hmm. I grew up so poor. Yeah. And like, 
even now I'm like, well, who cares? I'm in debt. You know, yeah. like I, I got all this knowledge. That's I right. learned everything. Yeah. And yeah. like, what's even cooler is that nepotism is like so deep in like yeah. institutions like this. Yeah. I could probably come here and take free classes for the rest of my life just because of the networking skills yeah. I've made. Yeah. You know, yeah. Yeah. as long as these tenure teachers That's are right. here, as I can come back. Here, you can be here. Yeah, <laughs> you know what I mean. So like, I can get degrees for free. Even I just need to know where these classes yeah. are going on. Yep. That's and right. like, I think that's like what's so sad about being on the other side. Walking through that portal has like made me recognize how hard I had to work when I didn't really need to. Mm. And like now that I'm here and knowing that like the bar is <laughs> You're white, like, that's it. Yeah, like the bar <laughs> is white do? mediocrity. Yeah, yeah, and like yeah. I've literally trained <laughs> so myself true. to be above exactly, that. Exactly, exactly. Like you, I do think you can take your foot off the gas if you want to. But that's what's so crazy. I didn't know it was this easy mm. to get access to these things. Yeah. If it wasn't for us, mm -hmm. it would be so easy. Yeah. And that's what yeah. makes me so sad. I'm the only one in my family who has ever been in these spaces. Yeah. And I hope that the generations that come after me continue to move th sure. through academia. For sure. In whatever capacity makes sense yeah. to them, you yeah. know. But it always just makes me think, especially when I talk about maybe trying to pursue mm -hmm. a PhD program, looking into research in a deeper way. Yeah. I'm always just thinking, am I just creating more alienation between my home and me yeah. because like I feel that way a lot that's the experience we have right as people of color is that educational attainment comes at a cost and it often is a very heavy cost and yeah. the further you advance the less your community really comprehends what you're doing and the less yeah. connected you feel yeah it's hard that's a beautiful way of putting it actually thank you so much I haven't been able to articulate that until recently with my mm. mom specifically yeah I think that's so cool about healing mm -hmm. is that like healing can just be like having those words. It has a cost, fam. Exactly. That's what I always tell people. It has a cost. It has a cost. Like come be a teacher, but it has a cost. It like, has and everything. And if you're willing to pay it, then there's good things. But yeah. also know that like I went in kind of naive. Like I thought it was going to be like some Hollywood teacher. And, <laughs> you know, got, like I was just going to get really fired up and then the kids would all get fives on their AP tests and it was all going to be gravy. Mm. But, you know, I think that's the part I was naive about going into the work was what it would exact in terms of a toll for me. Mm. And so that's that's my healing journey right now. This is community healing. It is. This community is true. This is true. Is an extension of our ancestral yeah. roots anyway. Yeah. yeah. You needed this. Yeah. This I is did. your healing this is journey. True. Thank you. I actually had the opportunity to to read your article, The Forgetting Learning Laws. What we need the most right now is healing. One of your quotes is the era of COVID-19 has wounded us and continues to wound us as a human race. We found ourselves wounded by a nationwide shutdown of schools. These wounds happened individually and globally. Our close ties to each other were strained and even severed. The pandemic ended lives, it ended traditions. And I really love that because it was a perfect encapsulation of those two years because there was so much loss. You know, it's interesting that you reference that piece because it feels like I wrote that a million years ago. But as I reflected, a little bit on its relevance today. You know, I have a daughter who is graduating high school this year, mm -hmm. and we were just talking about how this year, senior year, is the first normal year that she's had. Oh. And normal in the sense of 
traditional, like you're not worried about shutdowns right now. Yeah. And yeah. even if we should be worried about shutdowns because COVID's still with us, right? you know, her ninth grade year was disrupted. She spent her entire 10th grade year on remote and then 11th grade was really shaky. Yeah. And now as a senior, now she's applying to college and, mm. you know, I think she's great and she's going to be fine, but you can see the scars that yeah. a lot of kids have experienced. And so as I think about that, in the moment, I think that the profession of teaching is so much about the connections between students and between teachers mm-hmm. and students and in school communities where I saw every kid every day and I would have some interaction with them. I would see them physically moving. And I think during COVID, because I wasn't one of those teachers that made them keep their camera on. Like I, someone asked me, well, what's a good reason? I was like, I don't know what a good reason is. And that's why I'm not gonna make them do it. I know my perspective. Like I can find a nice room in my quasi suburban house that isn't gonna feel embarrassing to me. I don't know that others have that same experience, but it went from, And I was really tight with my sophomores, the ones who graduated last year. I was really close to them. Shout out, class of 2022. And I had so looked forward to having them in class because I was teaching 10th grade at that point. And then it all just ended. And I didn't get to finish that year in the way that I wanted to. And as things dragged out, like as we realized oh, snap, this is going to be more than three weeks. And then there were conversations, well, when we come back, maybe we'll have to extend the year into the summer. And even for me, I was like, okay, that would be okay, because then we'd be able to, you know, recover that. But then it just became clear that it wasn't going to happen. And so this thing that we thought we all were going to have did not occur. Mm -hmm. And that's the piece that I think created the wound. And so now we see people living out the trauma. Yeah whether it's people's inability to check their emotions anymore, whether it's in education, what we have is we've got some people who were so damaged by the last three years that it's hard for them to go on. And this is why teachers are quitting. And this is why students are struggling because they don't have a way of making sense of the global trauma that we all experience. And then you also have other folks who are saying, we just need to get back to normal. We need to get back to testing kids. Like I heard someone in my district use the phrase, it's time. And essentially what they're saying is it is time for us to forget COVID and move forward and get back to the way we were. To me, that's a trauma response because you don't have any way of making sense of what was lost and you cannot accept that something was lost And so you are just going to forge ahead and pretend it never happened. And so what we're seeing is a protracted trauma response. And at the time that I wrote those words, and I'd just gone to this amazing webinar put on by folks at Quetzal Education Consulting, my good friend Marilyn Suniga and some other people had gotten on there. And one of the things they talked about was we have to repurpose our pedagogies. Like we have to find, we have to realize this is, this moment demands us to be different and gives us the opportunity to be different. And we had all this conversation about we can reimagine education now. And now I just kind of feel like we we can't even be real about what we just went through. Yeah. And that's frustrating. And so that trauma that I wrote about three years ago, it's even worse than I thought it was going to be. That's so interesting, especially in the space of education. Yeah. 
because it's the vessel for self-exploration in my opinion and when you don't acknowledge what upsets you what impacts your emotional well-being yeah how could you ever be back to normal that's right and normal wasn't that great, normal by the way. Normal was not great. <laughs> like, normal was like, not people great. People forget that normal wasn't so good. We were in the middle of a very toxic administration, which yeah. followed another problematic administration, especially in those last years. Like, normal wasn't that great. And yeah. I think there's something you mentioned in the question, too, around students. And yeah. Kevin and I recorded a roundtable with four high school students just about yo, y'all are about to be remote. What do you think about this? Like, what are you thinking right now? And I remember what, wow. one of those students goes to school here now. Really? And uh, I'm really close with her family. Like, I've taught all of the kids in that family. Oh, wow. There's like six of them, and I've had them all in class at some point. And I remember asking about, has anyone reached out to you to see what you think we should be doing at this point? Because literally none of us had ever gone through this before. And I remember this young woman saying to me, I don't remember anybody asking me. Mm. And once again, it's kind of like we as adults did not have the answers at that time. And we sure didn't invite you in as partners. And I think that was the moment that really crystallized the importance of student voice and leadership in schools. Mm. And especially now when we see all the violence that's happening around the country, all the hate crimes, all of these things that are occurring online, in person, all of these different things, like we don't have the answers. And so we need to step aside and let our young people reimagine our solutions to these problems. Because my generation, we're just like, we'll either just deal with it or make a law. And it's like, okay, um, cool. <laughs> We've been doing that for a really long time. Like, And what changes have we seen? But I do think that piece about student voice COVID really amplified for me what it truly meant to listen to students and to say you know what let's co-create this learning experience together like I used to think I knew a lot I don't think I know anything at least not more than what you know about schooling right now so how do we do this together I think to provide students that much agency in regards to their academic experience is so foreign to me like some days and that's the thing is we have to be comfortable with trial and error and we have to be comfortable with the notion that every day in a classroom is not going to look like they tell you it's supposed to look like with soft classical music playing in the back everybody little nose to the grindstone it's quiet like there's no noise i grew up in a noisy community so Mm. and that's how we knew that we were all learning like that's how we all knew that we were engaged is we were like shouting over each other and so there were days that the students just had this incredible energy addressing the problems in the community and that kind of thing and there would be other days that they sat on their phones for 30 minutes and then i had to make a decision as a teacher it's like okay do i call them out and make them do the thing that they themselves said that they're going to do or do I wait and say all right how do we feel about our process today how do we feel about progress towards these goals and young people are going to critique themselves and they're going to say and I remember one student saying yeah when you it wasn't great I'm like yeah cool okay I'm not mad at you I'm not mad at you like what are our next steps? What do we do now? And they'll say, well, I think we need to structure this differently. I think I need to come in and, and then they would come up with a better plan for the next day. But I think they always knew that they own the space. They yeah. always knew that they set the agenda and they set the imperative. My friend Zainab refers to this as student-centered, teacher-powered. And so yeah. the only thing I have that the students don't have is years on this earth. Yeah. And so in that time, 
I have made connections, I have found resources. And so if my student says, hey, I want to read about labor history, I want to learn some tactics for like a strike, I'll say, oh, there's a book. If you feel like reading a book, it's here. If, if you don't feel like reading a book, there's some YouTube videos that have some great stuff. Mm -hmm. And so my job is to just have resources. Mm -hmm. They dictate what they want to learn and why they want to learn it. And I wouldn't say I got perfect at it. There are others who do it way better than I do, ever did. I'm not in the classroom anymore. But it was when education felt the most authentic to me. Mm, I think that's the coolest thing to me because, like, when we talk about decolonization, I feel like people just, like, throw it out as buzzwords Oh, nowadays. yeah. Oh, so many buzzwords. I'm and just like, talking about that today. <laughs> I think, like, that's what's so cool about what you're doing. I mean, we change actually, our vocabulary, but we don't change our mindsets or exactly. our practices. Yeah. Like, I think that that's the coolest thing is, like, okay, yeah, there's all these books that tell you how to be, like, this equitable practitioner and teacher. Mm -hmm. But how do you practice it? Yeah. How do you implement it? How do you create syllabi that look like yeah. you want it to yeah. look? Yeah. How do you create codes of conduct within your classroom that that center the students? Yeah. Well, in times, even when, like, I learned, I had a great mentor, Doris Dempsey, incredible mm -hmm. mentor when I was a brand new teacher, who told me that the students will sometimes have negative behaviors. And... Mm -hmm. You know, they'll get upset, they'll flip out, they might cuss you out, they might have things to say to you. She's like, never take that personally. Right. Because they are reacting in the way that makes the most sense in the moment impulsively because teenagers are impulsive. And so even when a kid would like snap at me, there would be times that I would say, hey, that was not like you. I don't think that's something that I assumed you would do. So A, did I do anything wrong? Did I do something that was harmful? I try to reflect. I'm not always aware when I do harmful things. But B, are you okay? Right. You know. And then the other thing that so many teachers won't do is I would apologize to kids. Because I yeah. stepped out of line a lot. I would get frustrated with kids. Because I think truly teaching equitably and in a humanizing way, it's a moving target. Because the things that were equitable yesterday mm -hmm. won't feel as equitable the next day. And you always have to have at least a sense of where everybody's at and what works. And so it's always this moving target. And so there are times that that overwhelmed and stressed me. And I would say things to kids in ways that I regretted. And so when I had a chance, I would take a student aside and say, yo, okay, so the way I spoke to you was really disrespectful. Mm -hmm. And I would be extremely upset if somebody talked to me the way I just talked to you. And I just want to apologize. And then there's the temptation of the teacher to say, but then you also, that kind of thing. And it's like, I'm sorry, when I chose disrespect, I forfeited the right to have a conversation about your behavior. That is now going to have to wait because now I have done harm instead of being the adult in the situation. And so people are like, you apologize to kids. I'm like, yeah, if I did something wrong, which is a lot, <laughs> you know. I'm sorry I was impatient. I'm sorry I spoke to you in that manner. I'm sorry I ignored you when you came up and asked me a question. Like, it's so you simple. don't deserve that. You don't deserve that. Yeah. What I did to you, you don't deserve. Because we normalize foulness. Yeah. Like, especially <laughs> we do. From we so normalize foulness. We, yeah. Especially yeah. From teach at lunch, something had happened. I went back in the classroom. She's eating. She's like, mm -mm, don't bother me. And it's me. okay for a teacher. Like, I needed to do this because there were yeah. literally moments that were not the best moments for me to right. talk to kids. But you never, but what they I never would, apologize, yeah. though. That's what I would special. say to students is 
hey, so it's not the best time. Can we talk after lunch? Perfect. Right. And then they're like, yeah, of course. And then they'll come back and they'll say something. And I'm like, man, I'm so glad I didn't like snap at you because you were actually like yeah, going through something. a really hard time. Yeah. And I was like, in that moment, I was the wrong person to come to. You and know? sometimes like you were just saying in those moments, it's when no one's around that the students will come to you and like be vulnerable. 100%. 100%. Or like, especially during lunch, yeah. I was the student that went and ate with teachers. Yeah. Like I was that student because yeah. I didn't have many friends yeah. and what does it mean to have a teacher that you know you can go to this door and they're gonna be like come on in yeah. you know like hey, and even just yeah. like you were talking about with zoom and like i think that's one thing that used to keep me up at night when we first went into lockdown is that there's so many students that you don't know what they go home to and yeah. now they're stuck there yeah. and they're not able to vouch for themselves through a teacher yeah they're not able to find community resources the same yeah. way through a teacher. And I didn't consider school to be a safe space for me. Right. But I know that a lot of the students I've had over the years do consider school a safe space. It's a place where they can escape certain harmful yeah. things that are in their lives. And it's a place where, for some, they feel affirmed and supported, and they feel fed, and they feel sheltered and safe and that kind of thing and so i always had to keep that in mind it wasn't a safe place for me but it is for a lot of kids you know, you know what's so special about that you're being the person that you always deserved oh, that's really you. cool wow, I, that's, that's what i think about uh, myself. now i gotta think about that <laughs> <laughs> that's real though yeah. you're the person you are becoming the person that when you were growing up you always needed yeah. and that is what makes you such a good teacher thank you so much of your work after researching you, especially as someone, I went to school at CSU for ethnic studies. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Um, so like the ethnic studies department up there like yeah. made me feel at home. And I think that's what's so cool about erasing power dynamics mm -hmm. within relationships. Yeah. Like even what you're talking about as a teacher with your student. I'm just here facilitating y'all so you don't burn it down. Yeah, right. <laughs> Whatever you want to learn about. Or if you want to burn it down, there's some resources. Yeah. <laughs> Yeah, let me know. Let it's me like, know. Let, let's, let's see. I mean, why are you going to burn it down? Okay. Yeah, let's well, talk about it. Let's talk about what works. <laughs> like, I love that because giving them the agency, the autonomy to explore, especially yeah. in one of the most purest places yeah. for exploring oneself, exploring education and just knowledge in general, like, why not give them the reins? Yeah. And this is Bell Hooks's writing that education needs to be the practice of freedom. Yes. And so these are, especially teaching high school, they're not free people. And we can debate whether they'll ever be free people depending mm -hmm. on how we view things like capitalism and patriarchy and homophobia and racism. Yeah. We can debate whether freedom truly exists, but I do think that school can be a safe place to practice, hey, I'm going to be empowered to make my own decisions yeah. and I'm going to be empowered to sort of dream and take the reins, as you said, and if it doesn't work, it's not the end of the it's world. The of the if world. it doesn't yeah. work, then I can reflect and learn. And so that's always been my own guiding light is Dr. Hooks kind of saying, are we practicing freedom today? Mm -hmm. Like I can manage out all of the issues in a class, but is that really preparing them to be free people? Mm -hmm. And that's always an important question to me. You just made me think a lot about how I've redirected life in general when mm -hmm. it comes to like success. So, like, I tell myself there's no such thing as winning or losing. Mm. There's only winning and learning. Winning and learning, yeah. And like, I hold on to that because it's not the end of the world. Just because I failed something, that's mm -hmm. a part of the journey to success. Yeah. Like, I'm not supposed to make it maybe the first couple of times. Yeah. 
but my goal is to be persistent enough and dig deep enough within myself to yeah. see the worth in what I'm doing. Yeah. And there's that great quote, even if you fall on your face, it means you are going forward. Yeah. You can't fall on your face going backwards. Like yeah. it's just not a thing that can happen. So it's yeah. the same sort of thing. Yeah, yeah. I love that. <laughs> One thing I wanted to ask you because I love ethnic studies. Yeah. I have worked with some of the coolest teachers in ethnic studies that have like just empowered me. Yeah. They told me, they were like, you know, a lot of what you already were doing here is the work you're going to continue to do forever, yeah. whether you know that or not. If you care about your community, this is the work you're going to do forever. That's deep. Nah, that's deep. And they like I told me that. that. I'm like, that they told you once that. I figured that out, I was like, well, <laughs> I'm in it. This is my yeah. love. Yeah. My community is my heart. It's my first love. And like, that's why. I love what I do because mm -hmm. I feel like it's just nurturing the people who have always nurtured me. Yeah. It's yeah. like that cyclical helping of each other, yeah. like going back and just like continuing. To, what are your needs? Yeah. Like always looking out for each other. Yeah. And like you said, it was powerful for them to tell me that because mm -hmm. they were being so honest with yeah. me. And it's like you said, it's real because yeah. the work I'm doing now is exactly what I was doing before. It just looks different. Yeah. It's a different theme. It's a different yep. tomb. It's a different location. It's adaptive. Exactly. Yeah. It's transcended maybe what it looked like before, but it's still there. Yeah. And like, that's what's so cool about other people believing in me mm. is that even when I can't see my light yeah. or see where it makes sense for this to like be a part of my journey, yeah. they always encourage me to like, Get out of your head. Yeah. Get out of your head real quick and th like think about you. Who that. are you? Like look at how great you are. You're going places. Yeah. Whether you know that or not, that's up to you. Yeah. You gotta believe. I love that. So we believe in you, that's but amazing. you gotta believe. And like that's like something that my mom's kind of always told me. She's like, I can't run your race for you. Mm. And like that's what my mom always used to tell me. She's like, I can't do the assignments for you. I can't do this for you. But I'm yeah. here to cheer you on. Yeah. I'm on the sideline. I'm your cheerleader. I but I can't run the race. That's and amazing. once I realized that it is my race and it's about what I want, yeah. I've taken real ownership of that. I've let it lead me instead of me leading it. Yeah. And I've let go of ideas of what I believe I'm supposed to be. I just let myself love the things I'm doing. Wow. And I think that's, that's cool. so powerful. That's cool. Like that's I, cool. my whole identity—that's deep. That's really mature. Like oh. that's really mature because I think a, there's a lot of people who won't let themselves do that. So yeah. I love that. I wanted to ask, as someone who loves ethnic studies, how can ethnic studies help students reclaim their identity through knowledge? Yeah, I think that ethnic studies is so powerful because it is really transcendent. And that was my experience mm -hmm. when I. When I took my first ethnic studies class at University of Colorado Boulder in the fall of 1995, like it was a long time ago. But I think that the first thing is the ability to see that you're actually part of a larger historical, cultural, political, mm -hmm. even economic legacy than what is told in the mainstream, which Dr. Salazar refers to as the white stream, right? right? And so it gives visibility to that we are not trees without roots mm -hmm. to kind of paraphrase marcus garvey's quote yeah. that a tree without roots just falls down but we have roots we all have roots and so i think that is a really important thing i think the epistemologies of ethnic studies are really important to me mm -hmm. because the things that my students shared with me have names like when one of my Mexican-American students is asked where are you originally from, yeah. that has a name. It's nativism, it's xenophobia. And so all of these things have names. So it's not just in your head that these things are happening. But I'll answer this with a story that I think 
drove me into taking ethnic studies pedagogy and praxis more seriously and really embracing it as the academically rigorous healer that I knew that it was. So I was at a small school, so everyone taught everything. I had like four different classes that I taught. Mm -hmm. At the beginning of the day, I taught advanced placement world history. And at the end of the day, I taught intro to ethnic studies. And so I had one young woman student who was undocumented, was in both classes. And one day we were just talking and she's like, mister, you notice I'm different in both classes? I'm like, a little bit. I was like, yeah, you're a little bit more outspoken in ethnic studies class. You're not as outspoken in the world history class. And she's like, you're different too. She's like, I feel like in AP, I'm learning from you. And in ethnic studies, I'm learning with you. And I was like, that's wild. And then she also said, the other thing I like about ethnic studies, I don't know any of this stuff, this is what she said. She's like, I don't know any of this history that you're sharing with us. I don't know any of this stuff. And usually when I'm in class with white students, I feel like they already know everything and I don't know as much as they do. In this class, we're on the same level. Mm -hmm. And so I think that healing comes because we've all been denied the opportunity to learn about the various histories that make up American history. We've all been denied that opportunity. My high school AP US history teacher told me that my people, my raza people, were largely illiterate. And that's why we don't have a Hispanic history class, like 1994. And so oh we have been, it's wild. Like I say it, I'm like, that's not true, is it? No, it's true. It's literally true. And so I think that we've had this stripped away from us. And especially younger generation, there are some of them who don't even know what's been taken from them. It's kind of like if Thanos had his way, if he just like could snap everybody away instead of just half, and then just reconstitute an entire race that had no idea what came before. Like it's sort of that fantasy. And so for me, the healing begins with, I'm just as good as you. Yeah. Like, I don't know anything about this, but you don't either. We're all brand new to this, and I'm able to actually think about my learning and not about the insecurity I feel right now. And so I think that's been the biggest healer is that it allows me to show up as my authentic self, and I encourage my students to show up as their authentic selves, and they're all in the same starting point. Like it is the great equalizer, unfortunately. Communities of color history is something nobody knows in our schools. And so I think that knowledge has great healing power. And I got a social media message from a student I taught 17 years ago who said, hey, I was thinking about you because my husband and I were sitting, our baby had fallen asleep. My husband and I are watching this thing and my husband didn't know anything about it. And so I just started filling him in on all the stuff about Chicano history and the Chicano movement. And he's like, I never knew you knew. How do you know all this? And he's like, well, it was my teacher. It was Mr. Munoz. Let me find him. And so it is one of those things because I think you made mention of this earlier that it is what we pass down. And not only does it empower the student who is in my classroom to be able to heal and have knowledge, but they can ostensibly pass it down to younger generations, whether it's their own kids or whether, like you, it's with a nephew or with a younger family member. And it's always been, for me, sharing stories that I know, but also encouraging my crazy, goofy daughter to also 
learn not only the stories where we came from but where she's from and who she is authentically in this moment because those all contribute to it yeah so so it's a healer history is always a healer for me if you're looking deeply enough to find as many perspectives as you can yeah you know malcolm x said it best like malcolm talked about the importance of people being able to study their own histories he said something along the lines of if i took a photo he was giving a talk i think it was at yale he's like if i took a photograph of everybody in this room and i put it up here on this wall what are you going to look for first you look for yourself he's like history's that way you Mm. can't appreciate anybody else in the picture until you know where you fit in that's so true I think that's a powerful thing, you know. I still turn that over in my mind and think about, now you put any history book in front of me and I'm interested, but it's because I finally had the opportunity to find out where my people were situated within history. And then that gave me, and then my people was always really like, (laughs) it was always really broad because I always felt a natural affinity for learning black history because first of all, I was raised with black history and Mm -hmm. by black history, but also looking around and saying, I always wanted to know more about Rachel B. Noel. Mm-hmm. I always wanted to know more about why this was called Harlem of the West. I always wanted to know more about these different things. The Black American West Museum, like yeah. Dr. Justina Ford, like the library I went to was named after her. And then the drama class at my high school wrote a musical about her. And like saying, this is history that people don't know. Mm-hmm. And it gives us a way, if this is my community, well, what else is out there? Yeah. Well, I'd be remiss if I didn't shout out the late, great Dr. Elisa Fascio, mm-hmm. who mentored me when I was an undergraduate at CU Boulder, who always knew what I was experiencing and what I was going through, but also didn't hesitate to challenge me. I took a Chicana feminism class with her, and I was the only cis-hetero male in the class, and I had a lot to learn. And I'm grateful to this day for having taken that class. But Dr. Fascio probably had a belief in me before most other people did. Mm. And she passed a few years ago. But I know I owe so much to her and how she helped me survive those years at Boulder. Wow. There's so many teachers I can name, too, that helped me survive. Because it really is a war. It's a psychological war. Yeah, it's the truth. You go to the dining hall, no one looks like you. You go to class, no one looks Mm -hmm. like you. You go to school, you look in the textbooks, no one looks like you. I always tell people, that's why I love Jordan Peele, I, I love yeah. film. So he great. really translates the fears that we feel yeah. to the screen yeah. in a way that makes it visible. You're like, I've never experienced that exact thing, but I know how that feels. Yes, exactly. <laughs> but the, the metaphors and the allegories are easy to catch. They're you're so like, easy. okay, so yeah, yes. I know exactly what you're talking about yes. right now. Film is so cool to me because mm-hmm. I feel like a good film, you're communicating with it. Yeah. Like throughout the whole movie. I have to analyze everything. I have to take a couple minutes and be like, oh my God, did y'all just see that? That plot choice is crazy. You know, it's so cool because film is also a way to snapshot our contemporary moment as well. Like the wow. things that yep. people yep. were watching or yep. were the highest rating or grossing. That's such you know, a great point. There's a correlation to like what we watch yeah. and like how it makes us feel and yep. the dialogue that it creates internally what we need with ourselves. And what we're, yeah. Yeah. That's powerful. Like you were saying, like having these means and ways of being able to like communicate these different issues, not only with ourselves, with our community, and then pass them down. Yeah. Like for example, in 60 years, that movie's still gonna be like the movie. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Like all black families are gonna be like, Yeah, it's gonna be classic. And I tell people all the time, like, black cinema. 
is different. Like yeah. people don't get it because we are really putting and translating our lives yeah. into film. Yeah, it's an artistic people. tradition. Yes. And, yeah. Absolutely. But before we leave, I only have two more questions. Okay. And the first one is, so as someone who is a veteran of teaching mm-hmm. and has done this for 20 plus years, I wanted to ask, can you share with us what you have learned from your students over these years? Yeah, I have learned from my students that becoming human is a process. Mm-hmm. And I think watching them work through difficult questions, work to address you know, difficult situations, whether it's in their own personal lives or whether it's in school, insecurities about their future, all that kind of stuff. I had the incredible privilege to watch them become human and become adults in front of my eyes. My school was a six through 12, and so we would get kids at age 11 and then see them graduate at 18, you know, out to kind of see the world. And and so in that process, I think they taught me what it means to get on the path to being human. And I'll never say that I'm fully human because I think that's aspirational. I think that there are a lot of systems that have put up barriers between ourselves and our own humanity, but they've shown me that it is a path. And even after the fact, last week, I was in this kind of negative space about kind of where I was going in life and all that kind of stuff. And I ran into a former student of mine that I met when he was in eighth grade. And now he's working as a family support liaison at a school. And I think he's probably around your age, I think. Okay. But just running into him was kind of like, you know, there's a lot of hard stuff out there in education. There's a lot of things that are really discouraging and saddening, but like this is a person that I met as a child and he is now an adult doing something that's meaningful for him. And so people like to say that life is short and I've started to say it's not, life is long. Like I don't recognize the person I was 25 years ago Mm. because I've had so many experiences since and you know, creator willing, I'll have more experiences for years to come, right? And so I think that being able to watch young people address, tackle, confront the issues in front of them, confront themselves and all those kinds of things is a reminder that humanization is for all of us. So I think that's the most important thing that kids Mm. have taught me. That and have a tough skin, because when they make fun of you, it's love. (laughs) I had a student meet me at registration and he's like, are you a teacher? I'm like, yeah, how'd you know? And he's like, your shoes. I was like, bruh. So I now try to come correct. And, you know, even now they'll like yell at me. It's like, not you creasing your shoes already. I'm like, you know, just, I'm not going to walk like a duck. I'm going to walk like a normal human being. Because you know what? I can afford to replace them. Yeah, you know, exactly. (laughs) But it's that tough skin, right? It's that tough skin. It's like, okay, you are clowning me because you love. And I'm from the east side and that's how we show love is by clowning each other. Sometimes it goes too far. But for the most part, it's, yeah, exactly. It's it's a little roasting. But you just made me think, one of my favorite quotes is from Maya Angelou. And it's, I am human, therefore nothing human can be alien to me. Mm. Um, Oh, I love that. Yeah, and that's my favorite quote. So don't think of yourself as a human, but maybe when you say that quote, if you bring it anywhere else, remind yourself that 
humanization is a process exactly exactly but before we go i wanted to ask if you have any resources or closing remarks you would like to leave our listeners with yeah so i think what what am i really into right now i think just reading is such a powerful thing and i think it's important i'm a phd student so 80 percent of what i read is for classes but i think it's always important to read the things that you just want to read so currently I'm reading a book by Reina Grande called A Dream Called Home. Mm -hmm. And it's her own sort of reflections on not really ever experiencing home in the way that a lot of us do and sort of dreaming of what it would have been like to kind of find it. So I really recommend that book. When I'm feeling strong enough, I listen to the Jacobin podcast. They do some really great stuff. Upstream podcast is really good. You know, and so I think a lot of it is just like, I'm reading probably about 14 books right now, just a little bit at a time. I may have ADD, I don't know. Um, Same. But kind of getting into that and just making sure that I'm always diving into the things that really matter to me. I'm reading Raekwon's memoir right now because I grew up with hip hop. And so it's a really important kind of perspective on something that resonates with me. And so I think that not everything that we should be working on should have some kind of monetary pay off at the end. Like sometimes we just have to do the things that we love. And so I think I would really recommend those two books. Also Crying in H Mart. I can only read a little bit at a time because it is really emotional and it is really, it does really activate a lot of pain from our own past. When I read those books, I'm looking for the mirrors and windows, right? My friend Africa Faney Mills writes about this, about the windows and mirrors. What are the ways that we're similar? And then what are the things that you can teach me about yourself Mm -hmm. that I don't relate to, but that I can also accept? So that and anything by J. Cole. Listen to it. (laughs) (laughs) Thank you so much. As we close this episode, I want to read a quote from our episode guest, Geraldo Munoz. Healing isn't the erasure of an injury. Healing is treating the wound, understanding it, and developing a diagnosis. And once we have formulated a diagnosis, we can talk about treatment. It is apparent that policymakers bureaucrats, and decision makers want healing, but they want to heal the system. We must heal people. And if the traditional practices and policies do not promote the healing of humans in the system, then those practices and policies must be set aside. Thank you for listening to another episode of The Rage Podcast. The Rage Podcast is the product of the Interdisciplinary Research Institute for the Study of Inequality, or IRISE. To learn more about what we do, please visit our website at irise.du.edu. To ensure that we bring you quality content, please be sure to subscribe, follow, like, or share on the platform you are listening to us on. For Rage opportunities and updates, please follow our social media pages. You can find us on Instagram, Twitter, and Facebook at The Rage Podcast, all one word. Thank you again for listening to another episode of The Rage. And remember, every day you are breathing, you are winning. Stay safe and you are loved.